chapter 9. If you don't have uh, a Bible there with you, you should find one in the seat in front of you. And so if you're in uh, that version, you can turn to page 404. 404, Nehemiah chapter 9. So we've been moving through the, the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we've seen this great concern for the city of Jerusalem, uh, specifically for its walls. And God using Nehemiah, this uh, cupbearer to, to the king, come out of concern and love for his, his people uh, to, to be grieved over the state of its city. To come and see physical and spiritual restoration, to, to see physical and, and spiritual rebuilding and repentance and joy. Uh, and we've seen here in the first eight chapters, though, the wall has been completed. That, that God has, has finished his work, uh, that he has uh, accomplished uh, exactly what Nehemiah was sent to do. And that in response to it, the people are now uh, following suit with their own hearts. That the Lord would wish restore these walls, but also draw his people back to himself. And we saw uh, last week that uh, they were following in, in response to God, and they, they pull out the scrolls, and they, they build up a platform, uh, a stage from which Ezra could read the law. That the, the walls in the sanctuary are, are being restored, and so this people's religious activity could resume. They, they could come to church again, basically. And so they've been standing out at time for, for six hours at a time and, and just coming before God and just hearing his word. And it says when they, when they heard the law, they're, they're reading uh, likely from uh, the, the, the Torah, the, the initial five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. They, they're hearing everything that God has commanded them to do. They recognize that they have failed to do it, and they begin to Nehemiah and Ezra and the governors, they, they come together and they say, put off your weeping. This, this is a, a joyous time. There will be time for, for weeping later. They're, they're not saying, put on a happy face. This is church and we're Christians and we need to, need to dress away and, and put on a smile. But instead they're saying, listen, it's time for weeping is, is later. We need to, to rejoice in what God has done. We need to celebrate this feast of, of booths and remember what God has done in our history and see how he's moving today. And we'll weep later. Chapter 9 comes along and this is later. right? This is when we can come and weep over sin and see the fullness of what God is doing. And, and lament, not for the sake of lament, not for making a show out of our faith or crying loudly so that others would see us. But instead responding honestly and candidly before God over the state of our sin. And so we're just going to take this in, in two parts as we see we, the, the people of Israel turning from feasting to fasting, but then finally as they draw near to God once more. And so starting with just the first 15 verses here of Nehemiah chapter 9, let's read the word of the Lord. Starting in verse 1, Nehemiah writes, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth. And with earth on their heads, the Israelites prepared themselves, or separated themselves, rather, from all foreigners. They stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. 
They stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of the day they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shaniah. They cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You preserve all of them. The host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him a covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, and the Jebusite and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day, and you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. You cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day. By a pillar of fire in the night. To light for them the way that they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. Gave them right rules and true laws. Good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath, commanded them commandments and statues and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. See, in these first 15 verses that Israel is turning from their feast and they, they move into fasting. Not only are they just coming together and they're saying, hey, we need to, to follow this feast with booze. Now we need to take our, our sin seriously and let's, let's go to confession, right? Let's, let's go and tell the priest, hey, we've done some stuff and could you absolve us real quick and we'll get back to, to life. No, it says that they, for a quarter of the day, would, would read from Scripture and for a quarter of the day, they would respond in confession and lament. That they would put on sackcloth and ashes and, and put dirt on their heads. This is the, the visualization of, of their mourning. It's the same way uh, of the funeral attire in, in our culture. That we uh, put on black clothes to, to mourn the loss of a loved one. That this is their, their culture's way of, of coming to God and saying, We are, are here for the funeral of our, our very sin. That we are dressed in mourning and lament. They, they separate themselves from the nations. Not coming here in a way that is, is racially separated, but religiously. That this, are, this is the people of God. That his people who are called by his name are coming together to, to 
bear with all that they had done. Not simply all that they had done, but we see this corporate element of their past as well. They bear with not only their own sin, but also the sins of their fathers. The things that they individually and personally did not do, they bore that guilt. They recognized the pain and generational impact of their sin. And so they come to God and they say, we are going to take this seriously. We are going to take our sin seriously. We are going to be a people set apart. Talking about with the kids, this idea that uh, in our culture at least, we as as believers, as Christians, are so often expected to uh, have no bad days. If if you've ever been to uh, Disney World, Disneyland, anything like that, they uh, like Chick-fil-A, they have customer service down. So their their cast members, their their employees, their their characters, everything that they play, they tell them over and over and over again, there are no bad days in Disney. You cannot have a bad day of work, right? Because the the child that you're going to meet, that's their one experience, the one interaction that they have with with their hero, right? With the the person that they are coming to see. They, They want to see Princess Jasmine. They want to see Prince Charming. They want to see whoever it is. And so they, they come, and if you're this character, if you're the cast member, you can't have a bad day. You, you can't say, hey, kid, not right now. I'm on my break, right? right? You just shatter this little nine-year-old's heart, right? Instead, they're, they're coming here, and they want to see this, and they're met with a smile on their face. Whatever line they've been given, whatever uh, character they, they have to embody, and, and they're going to, to make that child's day. Our, our world expects Disney-like responses from Christians. The, the, the world wants to, to see us and say, oh, does Jesus really make you different? Why are you mad today? Why, why are you sad? Why are you expressing these, these emotions? Why are you moving through this? It doesn't our worship, doesn't that make us happy? Shouldn't we only sing happy songs? Couldn't we only preach happy sermons? what we find is that that single facet worship and living and life at large it it destroys not just our our witness in the way that it it seems fake and hypocritical that Christians actually do have a response that God has given us a way to, to deal with and reckon with the categories of pain and lament and bitterness in our own hearts but it also destroys our very soul that there is a time to set ourselves apart, to come out of the happy worship service, to recognize that the pain that is around us nationally or internationally, the pain that is happening in our own communities and our own churches, to come before God and say, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made the heavens, the earth, all that's in them, we come to worship you. And that this worship is, is not simply looking at the face of God and walking away with a smile, but it's also looking at our very hearts. Seeing the mercy that he doles on us that we are unworthy of. And so as they begin to look at their past, 
They look at their history. They, they look at God's calling. Uh, they're looking back at Genesis and Exodus. They're, they're likely having Ezra read to them and remind them of what's happening here. And, and then they proclaim, God, you are our creator. You, you have taken Abram and you've taken Moses and you've taken our fathers and our forefathers and, we, and you've taken them and made them into something that they were not capable of on their own right. And over and over and over, we respond with ingratitude and sin and cycles of selfishness. But scripture leads us to a full engagement. That scripture is not itself the full engagement. We don't just simply come and say, this is God's word and there is nothing else that he has given us. No, God calls us to embody worship with Scripture, with the Word of God, but also with the voices of our mouth. This uh, entire chapter really is is poetic prose. It's the idea that this is, is poetry, this is song, this is something that they could sing and declare to God. That we don't just come to, to church in order to, to hear from God's Word, but we also come to sing God's Word, to pray God's Word, to confess from God's Word. To draw near. This full engagement of the emotion, the full engagement of the person, is a double confession that God is creator and he is Lord, that we have been full of ingratitude and sin, and yet he is not displaced. That he does not throw us aside, but instead draws near to us. Central African Republic scholar uh, Nupongo Wianzana says this. He says, The alteration of sadness and joy, rejoicing and fasting, offers in a marked contrast with the present liturgy of so many communities in which only dances and rejoicing fill the worship. We should rejoice in God's grace, but at the same time, we need to be aware of our failures to allow ourselves to be an attitude of mourning. That this tension is, is what's needed. Not that we pull too far on the band in which it snaps or leave it passively coiled. But that we come to God with, with joy and with pain, with the fullness of, of bittersweet, that we can fast and we can feast. We can alternate them or, or do them together but that in the end we are drawing near to God. And so Nehemiah is reminding them of their history. Ezra is here speaking to them of what God has already done. And they're reminded once more that they've been called to go and possess the land. Verse 15 again, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, brought them water out of a rock for their thirst. You told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. And now let's continue in verses 16 through 38. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously. They stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. They stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive Gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. 
even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. And they had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day. The pillar of fire by night that you used to light them the way that they should go, you gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and you still gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, the king of Heshbon, the land of Og, the king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. You brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. And so the descendants went in and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. They captured fortified cities and a rich land. They took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They cast your law behind their back and they killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of suffering they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. You abandoned them into the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. And yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. You warned them in order to turn back to your law. And yet they acted presumptuously. They did not obey your commandments but sinned against your rules. Which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck. And would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through the prophets, and yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps his covenant and steadfast love, Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all of your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully with while we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them. In the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves 
Its rich yield goes to kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. The rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. Because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes and our Levites and our priests. So Nehemiah has moved them from feasting into fasting and now recounts the the rest of their story. He he moves from Exodus as as they've now come up to the the promised land. He he moves into uh, the the book of the law as we see uh, the people almost into the land. But because of their sin and because of their fear, they hold back. And so we move into Joshua and we move into Judges and we move into Samuel and we move into Kings. And over and over again, you see that God is faithful, that God is gracious, that God is good, that God is unchanging. And the people stiffen their necks. They harden their shoulders. They harden their hearts. And they turn from them. So he gives them into the nation's hands. And they cry out to God. And his mercy draws them to him. He restores them. He, he holds them once more into his face. And they stiffen their necks. And again and again and again. That we, like Israel, are a fickle people. We are stubborn and stupid and selfish. And in moments of of rest and respite and comfort have led us into sin and to complacency. That we see it so often here in, in the lives of Israel, but we see it so often in our own lives, in our own experience, in our own pain. Right? For, for those who, who work uh, in, in workplaces uh, which have uh, danger to them, whether you work uh, with machinery or electricity, you, you likely know uh, that workplace injuries uh, often increase with your experience. It, it's not that uh, you, you have lost your muscle memory, your skills, or your experience. No, all of that has, has increased. What happens is that you lose the healthy fear that you have when you just start out. When, when you're working with, with something that you know to be dangerous, you know, this can take off my hand, this can kill me, this can electrocute me, this can whatever. Right? When, you, when you're fresh on the job, you recognize, okay, I need to be careful around this. And as experience goes on, as you become more comfortable in that space, you, you have muscle memory, you have skills, you have experience. And so you, you kind of know what's happening around there. And then one day you, you lose the healthy fear, you make the mistake uh, that you would not have made on the first day. And that sets in. That's exactly what we see in Israel. That we've lost this healthy fear of God. We, we've lost this sense of holiness. We think, oh great, I'm comfortable. I have rest. I have blessing. Everything around me is doing good. This is exactly what the, the prophets are coming in uh, around and, and before Nehemiah's time. Even in the book of Amos, they're, they're coming to him and they're saying, look at all this prosperity we have. Look at all the money we have. Look at our houses. Look at all the ways that God has, has blessed us. But how often in the Psalms does David cry out, why are you blessing these wicked people? That blessing and possessions and prosperity in in a material sense, in a worldly sense, are not always a sign of God's favor. 
they're often a sign that this world is corrupt. But God is not far off. God will not let the wicked prosper forever. That judgment will come. That those who are afflicted but cry out to God will receive all that they ask for. That those who come to Christ and long for him. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Those who are weeping, that he will wipe away their tears. Those who are humble will be lifted up. Because while we are a fickle people, he is a faithful God. Don't you see that over and over and over again in Nehemiah 9? We've done these great sins. We've done these great sins. And yet you are gracious and merciful. That you are still God. His patience doesn't wear thin. He is unchanging in his covenant. He is unchanging in all that he is. Because he is. The scholar uh, Herman Bobbing reflects on this. He says, the contrast between being and becoming marks the difference between the creator and the creature. That every creature is continually becoming. It is changeable, constantly striving, seeks rest and satisfaction and finds this rest in God and in him alone. For he is pure being and not becoming. That he is already set. He's immutable. He's unchanging. He is faithful. And while we strive over and over and over again, and we move away from him and towards him and away from him and towards him, that he doesn't move. That he continually invites us to him. That we don't move away for the 13th time, and at that moment we are cut off forever. But over and over and over again, he proves his faithful love. That we are never destroyed or abandoned. There is still right punishment because he is holy. There is righteousness and faithfulness that God is on his throne. And so Israel can, can read this chapter, that we can move through it. And, and I, 38 verses is long, but I promise what, what it says is far better than anything that I could say. And so they, they come to God. They see God. They see how, how their forefathers, they see how, how their ancestors have fallen into these cycles of sin. And yet, when they call to God, he answers. And so they've fallen into the cycle of sin again. And, and what is their response? What can their response only be but to call to God once more? And so they, they hear this account. They confess their sins and then in verse 38, it says this. And because of all of this, because of, of the situation that we are in, because of everything that is here, yeah, we have a wall again, but what does he say? He says we're slaves. All our work is going to these kings that we have been placed under because of our sin. We are in great distress. And because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. The sealed document, the names of our princes, the Levites, our priests, we are coming to God once more. There's this self-knowledge that they are slaves once more, that they are in dire straits. They have the joy of a completed wall. There is still good happening here in Israel. 
And yet they know that they still need the blessing of the Lord. They still need to return to him to, to receive this relationship, this covenant care. And so they come with this binding agreement. This action, this response to draw near the face of God once more. This sealed document here, it says it's a firm covenant. A better word is probably an, an agreement. It's an agreement by the people. It's uh, the same word that we get, uh, the, the word amen. Right? This, this let it be so. We, we end our prayers with amen, amen. Yes, this is true. We, we affirm this. We want this to be so. And so it says they're coming with this sealed document, this amanah, right? This, this amen, amen. We are agreeing together. Let this be so. We, we see what has happened in our past. We want to cry out to God once more. We want to call to him. We want to come to him. We want to bind ourselves to this action to be affirmed by the people. That in the lament, in repentance of their sin, they, they come to him again with action. The repentance is not just, oh, I feel sorry, I, I'm, pity, I'm pitiful for, for what I have done in my past. No, but it's responding and turning towards God once more. Eighth century pastor theologian Bede says this, he says, After purging themselves with resolved purpose from the contagions of their wrongdoing, they might unite themselves to the divine covenant to confirm by its terms in word and in writing they separated themselves from the association of the ungodly so that they would more confidently complete the work they began long ago. They, they see themselves as a continuation of that history, of we've fallen, but let's go once more. It's actionable repentance. We need God again. We need the Spirit again. What they didn't realize yet, but what we know now, is that we need His Son. That as they pursue God, as they they come to God, and and they say, listen, here are our sacrifices. Here is is our worship. Here is our praise. Here is everything that we have. We come before you, and we repent. But the blood of that ox, of that lamb, of that goat, of the dove, of the burnt offerings, of everything that they could bring was not enough. It would work for a moment. It would work for a time, and then they would have to return and do it again and again and again. But what we see is looking through the cross, looking through what Christ has done. There's only one sacrifice. That because Christ has met us in our sin, because Christ has met us with our stiff necks and our ingratitude, and our fickleness. We are now able to pursue him with a holy resolve. Why? Because he gives us his spirit. He, he gives us what, what the people of Israel never had. He, he gives us the blood of Christ. The, the Lord comes to us and, and seals us by his own spirit. He, he calls us to, to live and live fully. To still embody this great joy and great lament. The, the full expression of, of where we are to come before him and pursue him. And so we have the opportunity. Make a covenant and sealed writing. 
Seal the document with the names of our princes, our Levites, our priests, to repent of sin and, and respond and pursue God. So we recognize in our own hearts, in our own lives, I cannot, I am not capable of restoring myself to God. I can read the Bible, I can come to church, I can give money or help people. But I am still a fickle God, a fickle man in need of a faithful God. That I need Christ to cover me with his blood. I need his spirit to, to seal my heart. I need him to lead me. Because there is no one else. That we would declare, you are the Lord. You alone. You have made heavens and the earth and all that's on it and the seas with all that is them. That you would preserve all of them. The host of heaven worships you. That we would worship you. That we would draw near to God. And he will meet us there. Because he is faithful. Father, we thank you, God, for your, your goodness. Lord, for your faithfulness. Lord, that in Christ we don't have to put on a face, we don't have to put on a mask, but Lord, we can come to you, Lord, fully. Lord, in, in great pain and suffering, Lord, in, in confusion and in doubt, Lord, in joy and exuberance. Lord, that you want all of us. Lord, that we can bring you all of us. God, let us pursue you with a holy resolve. Lord, seal our hearts by your spirit. Lord, give us your son. Lord, as we call to you once more, Lord, wherever, wherever we are, Lord, however far away from you, we are today. Lord, we ask. Lord, draw us once again to your face. For you are Lord, and there is no other. Lord, we pray all these things in Christ's name, in the power of your Spirit.